chapter 1. This morning we're going to be focusing uh, on verses 26 through 32, uh, but I'm actually going to start a couple verses earlier uh, in verse 24. Romans chapter 1, starting in verse 24, says, Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. In verse 26, it says, For this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were, cons- uh, and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Verse 1 of chapter 2 says, Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. Please be seated. May God bless the reading of his word. As I said this morning, uh, we are studying the book of Romans, uh, which you may know is the most extensive writing in the New Testament about the inner workings of salvation. And it seeks to answer this fundamental question, how does one become righteous or right with God? And the answer, we're told, is pretty simple. No one is righteous on their own. You and I are only made righteous by God in his unmerited grace toward us through faith in Jesus Christ. That's it. There is no other solution that will produce righteousness. And the purpose of the book of Romans is to encourage the church in Rome with this truth, to be transformed by this good news, the gospel, that all people can come to know God through Jesus Christ. God's desire is that this new body of believers, Jews, Gentiles, rich and poor, men and women, would be united. Despite divisions of race and class, that they would be led by the Spirit. Ultimately, that they would be missional, sharing the good news of salvation with others. And the author, Paul, he spends the first three chapters of this book of Romans to make clear that all people are sinful. By that, I mean that we all miss the mark when it comes to being righteous and doing right. When you compare anyone to a perfect, infallible God, each of us comes up lacking. That is what sin is, according to the Bible. 
And that's the universal problem of mankind. It's the root of our dysfunction. It's the scourge on our society, on the physical world. And it's that which must be understood if we are to even begin to address how the gospel has an answer to that problem. And so this first section of the book is to make that plain, to culminate in chapter 3, verse 25, where we come to the conclusion, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The last time we were in the book of Romans together was back in July, uh, just in the first few verses before this. And when we were in this passage before, we started to see that Paul is talking about mankind as a whole. And we, last time we looked at three actions that we take when we sin. In our sin, we suppress the truth. We see that in verses 18 through 20. We withhold worship and gratitude that's due to God. And we exchange the good things that God has given us for cheap knockoffs. And so in our passage this morning, we see that last point expanded. We see sin grow in its influence and its effect on our lives. Our hearts and our minds are affected, which manifests physically in our sexuality and grows to touch every aspect of our lives, our work, our play, our minds, our emotions, and our relationships with others. And so this morning, as a way to, to gather our thoughts, as an, a brief outline, we're going to be looking at three consequences of our sin that disorder our perception of reality. Three consequences of our sin that disorder our perception of reality. First, we'll look at disordered desires that sin causes in verses 26 and 27. We'll then see how sin disorders our relationships in 28 through 31. And lastly, we'll see how sin causes us to have a disordered sense of justice. And so before we dive in to each of those points, I, I just thought it would be uh, behoove us to take a big picture view of this passage to try to understand Paul's overall argument and so that we don't get lost in the weeds as we're making our way through. As I was reading, you may have noticed a pattern in this passage. There are three sets of cause and effect at the end of chapter 1. God is said to give us up to sin because mankind exchanged what God has given for what man wants. So look with me at verse 24. We see that first exchange. God gave them up in the lusts of their heart. Verse 26, similarly, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. And lastly, in verse 28, God gave them up to a debased mind. God handing us over to the sin that we have chosen is a judgment of God on mankind. And similarly, each time that God is said to give us over to that sin, the cause or the reason for that is the same. So if you look at verse 25, it said he did that because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. Or in verse 28, because they did not see fit to acknowledge God. See, mankind has lied to itself about God's very existence and is now reaping the consequences. And throughout the passage, Paul highlights the way that sin grows and develops in our lives. 
In verse 24, we're told God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to this dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Do you notice the first casualty of mankind's pursuit of sin? What is the first thing that gets taken down? In the lusts of our hearts, we're given to impurity. Our thoughts, our desires, our heart, these are the first to fall. This agrees really well, I think, with our experience of sin. It also agrees with Scripture. Proverbs 4.23 says, Above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. For us, the thought might cross our mind, huh, that's a really beautiful woman. Or, it'd be really easy to take a look at my neighbor's test and just copy their answer. But it doesn't stop there, right? When we devote our thoughts and we devote our heart to sin, verse 24 continues that it leads to the dishonoring of our bodies among themselves. Sin is then made manifest in our actions, in our decisions, It's played out in our very bodies, right? It's not now limited to our heart or our mind, but it's played out in our very bodies. It can grow and grow unchecked until it consumes us. James, in his epistle, puts it this way. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. And so Paul, having established that sin has taken root in the heart of mankind, he then goes on to talk about how it's playing out physically in our bodies, in the world around us, in our actions. And in verse 26, he uses one sin in particular as an example or a physical picture of that spiritual reality. He talks about homosexual behavior, as an exchange of heterosexual relationships that God has given to man. In verse 29, we continue down in that sin spiral where Paul goes on to list 21 specific ways that sin continues to latch on to our hearts and to mar our relationships with God and others. And it gets so bad that we eventually lose our ability to even tell right from wrong, to get a sense of what justice is. Which is why in verse 32, we're told that despite knowing that sin is wrong, we continue to do it and cheer it on in other people. So let me be clear, that's kind of a a general sense of our passage. But I want to be clear that the main idea of this passage is that all people are sinners. All people are helpless before God because of the way that we have rejected him to make much of ourselves. All people. And so while this passage speaks clearly and compellingly about one sin in particular, homosexuality, and spends a significant portion to discuss that, if you leave here today thinking that God's word here is only talking about homosexuality, you'll have missed the point. And so with that in mind, let's dive a little deeper into our points. The first consequence that we see of sin is the way that it disorders our desires. We see that in verses 26 and 27. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. 
And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And so according to Romans, homosexuality is an exchange of natural relations for those contrary to nature. Literally, in Greek, this word natural refers to the natural use or function. Uh, so for instance, verse 26 specifically says, the women exchange the natural function of men for those that are contrary to nature. Saying that men, in a sense, are made for women, and women are made for men. And I think that's something uh, that many of us understand. Our survival as a species kind of depends on that uh, interaction, men and women coming together in marriage. And yet, what Romans is saying is that the impact of sin is an inversion of that human desire for sexual intimacy. And if you look at verse 27, it says that those who act in this way are receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. So this disordering of good, natural desires is both a consequence of sin and a judgment from God on sin. Now I understand um, many of you may come from many different places with regards to this topic. And so I thought it would be helpful for us to just do a brief survey of what the Bible does have to say about homosexuality. What does Scripture actually say beyond this passage? There are essentially six passages in the Bible, three in the Old Testament and three in the New Testament, that explicitly address homosexual behavior. From Genesis 19, Leviticus 18 and 20, uh, here in Romans 1, 1 Timothy 1, and 1 Corinthians 6. All of those passages are clearly negative toward homosexual behavior. Leviticus says, You shall not lie with a man as one lies with a woman. I think the Bible is astoundingly clear. Homosexual behavior is outside of God's design for sexuality. And yet, for a topic that is so important to us in the modern day, six passages feels pretty sparse. Does not feel like a lot. And so, as you have conversations with Christians, with non-Christians, about what the Bible says, there are a few common objections uh, to what the Bible has to say. And I thought it would be helpful for us to just go through a couple of those objections and see how Romans 1 might address those. The first is that uh, some may say that the homosexual behavior that's described in the Bible is specific to forms of exploitation and abuse. So for instance, in Greek culture, pederasty was really common, which is uh, kind of the vile practice of older men molesting boys as a way to train them sexually. In Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis 19, where we see an example of rape and the threat of rape. And those, I think everyone would agree, are clearly evil and wrong. And yet some would say that those are the specific sins that the Bible has in mind when it talks against 
homosexual interaction. But if we look at the language, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, there's no sense that that would be the case, that it is limited to those specific instances. There's no indication that there's a subset of same-sex behavior that the author, biblical authors have in mind. The other objection that is common, specific to this passage, is the use of the word nature, and what it means to be contrary to nature. So some may argue that what really uh, Paul has in mind is those with a heterosexual inter, uh, orientation who then go on to commit or uh, engage in homosexual behavior. They're going against their nature, right, is, is how the argument would go. And so the argument says that for homosexual-oriented people, it would not be sin. But unfortunately, this kind of glosses over uh, the Greek, which I know a lot of us aren't necessarily going to be familiar with. Those phrases, according to nature and contrary to nature, were common ways in the Greek world to refer explicitly to homosexual behavior. So 400 years before Paul, Plato uses it to, to talk about this. Plutarch uses these same exact phrases that Paul is using to talk about this behavior. Philo, Josephus go on to use it. In the Greek world, these terms, according to nature and contrary to nature, refer specifically to heterosexual and homosexual behavior, period, per se, right? Regardless of the context. Lastly, another common objection that you'll hear is that since the Bible is relatively silent on homosexuality, there should be or must be room for loving, committed, same-sex relationships that honor God. To which I would say, as we look at Scripture, there are no positive examples, no exhortations to pursue such relationships. This is essentially an argument from silence. Well, because God doesn't make a huge deal about it, we don't have entire books of the Bible about this subject, it must not be that important. For instance, Scripture talks way more about money or charity, so maybe he doesn't really care as much about same-sex relationships. Let's go along with that logic for a second. Because it's not frequently discussed in the Bible, does it mean that we can avoid clear teaching on it? Following Christ is not about trying to skirt the edges of what's okay, just doing enough that is allowed or permissible, seeing what I can get away with, and still technically be within the letter of the law. A life devoted to Christ is about full-fledged devotion, striving after what he does call us to. And so what is present in the Bible is an overwhelming encouragement to pursue sexual fidelity in marriage between man and a woman, to refrain in every other circumstance and what I find most compelling about Romans 1 out of all of those passages that talk about homosexuality is that Romans 1 provides us a theological basis for why it is sin. For two reasons, there's a theological basis for why homosexuality is sinful. 
The first is that one of the very first things that God does when he makes us, when he creates mankind, is to make us male and female. He created us fundamentally, and our relationship, therefore, is one of creator and creature. The creature doesn't dictate the rules, and the desire to subvert that order is what is at stake regarding sin. The second theological basis is that in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, marriage between man and women is used as a picture of the relationship that God has with his people. Or in the New Testament, a picture of the relationship that Christ has with his church. Men and women, different entities, brought together in mutual love and sacrifice. And so according to Romans 1, homosexuality in these terms is man exalting man. Woman exalting woman instead of exalting Christ. Do you see that? If marriage between men and women is meant to reflect God and his people, then sexual relationships between men and men or women and women only reflect ourselves. So I understand that that is very theological, very academic, and many of you may be wondering, what about practical issues? Many of you have friends and family, co-workers, who identify as gay or lesbian, and I know several of you who deal with this personally. I, myself, try to be pretty open uh, about the fact that I've dealt with same-sex attraction since I was in middle school. And I want to make clear that it is because of passages like Romans 1, not in spite of them, that I've come to trust God more deeply. Because if he could speak to the deepest needs of my heart in such a clear and compelling way, I could follow him in all areas of my life. And so I know that that is not a long or satisfying answer, but I would be happy to talk more with you about that later. And so finally, there is a last misconception about our passage. Some have read this passage in history and have understood it to say that homosexuality is in fact the worst sin. It is the worst kind of sin. That's why Paul puts it first. And if you are maybe wondering that, let me just say that it's not the worst sin. And unfortunately, it's not the only sin that mankind is up against. And with that, that takes us to our second point. We saw that the major consequence of sin is the disordering of our desires. And next, we see that a major consequence of sin is disordered relationships with others. We see that in verses 28 through 31. So if you look at that long, long list that Pastor Daniel read in his prayer of confession that I read at the beginning, you see that everyone is touched by all manner of unrighteousness. So you may not have personally identified very much with verses 26 and 27, but no one escapes this list. Paul enumerates 21 sins, specific ways that mankind exchanges the glory of God for self-glorification and a self-centered life. Some of these seem pretty standard, agreeable, Evil, malice, 
murder, deceit, universally considered bad, classic sins. But there's a, a wide range in this list. There's something for everybody, unfortunately. Boastful, foolish, insolent, strife. Things that might not feel like a big deal to us are sin. Just as bad, just as wrong, just as deserving of death as any on this list in this passage. Something else I want you to notice about the sins in this list is how many of them affect our relationships with one another. A consequence of sin is broken relationships, covetousness, gossip, slanderers, disobedient to parents, heartless. Sin causes our relationships to be disordered. Instead of loving trust, there's doubt. Instead of peace, there's strife. Instead of humble submission, there's insolence and ruthlessness. No longer is sin just impacting our minds. No longer is sin just impacting our bodies. It's impacting the way that we interact with everyone. And implicit in that is it deeply affects the way that we relate to God to the point where we can be called haters of God in verse 30. So I want you to see with maybe a little bit of sanctified imagination, as Pastor Stephen might say, that any of the sins listed in this uh, mega list could be used in the same way that homosexuality is used in verses 26 and 27 to illustrate that what sin is fundamentally is an exchange between what God has given and what we've chosen. So you could imagine, for instance, 26 and 27 might read in regards to murder. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged submission to the God of life and instead took the lives of others to bend to their own will. For they did not recognize God as the arbiter of life and death, but the men likewise abused their strength to rob others of life itself, receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Or faithlessness, For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged a childlike trust of a loving and compassionate God for anxious faithlessness. And the men, likewise, gave up daily dependence on the truth of God for what he deemed most logical and most pleasing in his own eyes, receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Or haughty, or boastful. This will be the last one, I promise. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged the worship of the radiant, glorious God for worship of their own achievements, skills, and appearance. The men, likewise, gave up praise of the Almighty for praise from mortal men, receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. You see, each of the sins in this passage, represent a choice that you and I have made to exchange God's glory for our own. Any of them, right? Evil is a choice of depravity over purity. Malice, cruelty over kindness. Strife, war over peace. Lies over truth, backstabbing over embracing the prodigal, hatred over love, rebellion over humility, 
using our creativity for sin instead of our creativity for life. Rebellion over trust. Hardened heart over heart of flesh. Restitution and revenge over mercy. These are the choices that we make, that you make, that I make, that all people make. They affect not just our minds and our hearts, our bodies, our sexuality, our relationships with one another. Which takes us to our last point this morning. Not only is a consequence of sin disordered desires or disordered relationship with others, but finally, it causes a disordered sense of justice itself, which we see in verse 32 and the first verse of chapter 2. Verse 32 says, Though they know God's righteous decree, that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself. For you, the judge, practice the very same things. As if our situation wasn't bad enough, not only do we sin in myriad ways, but we fail to recognize that our life is even characterized by sin. Our very notion of what is right and what is wrong is warped. It's completely upside down. And Paul has arranged this passage in a sort of pincer movement for the reader. Let me explain what I mean. It's kind of like a parent who is reprimanding your brother or sister for something. Maybe they didn't do the dishes or they left a big mess or something like that. And you may be sitting on the sidelines quite smug (laughs) that they're getting in trouble. Someone else is on the line. But then your mom or your dad turns their gaze to you. You're also in trouble. They have more uh, to reprimand you about as well. You see, because Paul's audience, a lot of Jews, would have associated homosexuality as a decidedly Greek problem. This was present in Greek culture, it was celebrated uh, in Greek art. It was more or less common. Whereas for Jews, this would have been unheard of. It would have been uh, abomination, apostasy. There, this is not something that was in part of Jewish practice and culture. And so homosexuality was something that those people dealt with. It was something that those guys who were really sinners struggled with. And so as Paul starts to list these 21 ways that sin begins to spiral out of control, I think a lot of his listeners would have felt vindicated, right? They would have felt better about themselves. They might even say, yeah, yeah, sin is a, sin's a big problem. Those guys really have it coming. They really deserve God's wrath. And right at that moment, where they feel completely smug, completely uh, in the right, Paul comes in with a sucker punch in verse 1 of chapter 2. For in passing judgment on another, 
you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. When we look upon others with disdain because of their sin, we fail to understand how truly desperate and needy we are because our lives are also characterized by sin. Jesus puts it this way in Matthew 7. Why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Why are we so concerned about the driver who's tailing us only to slam into the car in front of us? If you measure your life by the pitiful yardstick of being less sinful in some areas than other people, you are in a desperately wrong situation when the yardstick of God's perfection leaves you completely lacking. And so one clear application of this text is to live and examine our lives with humility. If you are a human being, which I think most of us in this room are, you are influenced by sin. You can have different names, different shapes, but sin is our fundamental need as humans to address. Another clear application, and one that may be harder, perhaps, in some ways for us in the Bay Area, is that we as believers in the gospel can neither pursue an attitude of callous indifference toward those affected by sin or blind acceptance of that sin. Verse 32 says we cannot give approval to those who sin. Both of these, the callous indifference, the blind acceptance, they're both sinful responses to sin. And so in light of all this, in light of the direness of our situation, the question remains, who can stand? Who can do it? If everyone has been condemned, either by 26 and 27, and or by everything that's followed, who has any hope to know God, given that we are all sinful? And the answer is no one. No one has that hope. One of the most distressing feelings for those affected by same-sex attraction who come to terms with what God says in his word is a feeling of helplessness. I didn't choose to feel this way. There's nothing I can do to change it. I can't make it go away. And you may have felt similarly about any other sin. I've tried to change my behavior and I can't. I can't help but think these thoughts. It can feel devastating. And yet, in some ways, I think that can be an incredible blessing. Because when you come to a place where you recognize your helplessness, you are right, need, you are right where you need to be before God. When you realize that nothing you can do is enough, Nothing you can do will change your heart's inclination to sin. 
you're in exactly the right place to receive mercy. Jesus says that blessed are the poor in spirit, those who are bankrupt spiritually, the helpless, for they shall receive the kingdom of God. However, if you are smug and feel like you dodged a bullet, you didn't. You got hit. You're bleeding out. And you need medical attention immediately. So the longer that you're unaware of that, the worse things will get. Because in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself. But I think it's in light of all of this that we can help make sense of Paul, who in 2 Corinthians 12, 19 goes on to say, Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. It is still weakness. It's still a struggle. It still hurts. It's inability. It's helplessness. It's a wrestling between our disordered desires and the desires that God is ordering in us to follow him. But I can boast in my weakness because Christ's power and not my own is on display. And so, brothers and sisters, sin does not have to be the end of the story by any means. The Bible is clear. Sin leads to death. It leads to disordered desires, relationships, our sense even of what is right and wrong. But Christ has dealt with sin. Through his death and resurrection and ascension, we can have confidence that sin no longer has sway over us, no longer has power over our lives. 1 Corinthians 6, as I mentioned, is one of the passages in the Bible that talk about homosexuality. Like this, it's in a long list of sins that we are to avoid, we are condemned by. And yet, if you continue reading in that passage, Paul says, and such were some of you. Such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Sin has a hold on all of us. It has influence on all of us. But in Christ, it has no power anymore. So if you don't know Christ, if you don't have a relationship with Jesus, I encourage you this morning to consider him seriously. He alone is the solution to the shared problem we have in sin. Jesus Christ, the creator, the one that we should all worship instead of the creatures that we've uh, given our attention to, he entered into this world of disorder. Not to condemn us to hell, though each of us deserve that, deserve death. He came that we may know God and have life in his name. And so though we exchange him for lesser things in order that we would be satisfied, he exchanged his glory for lesser things that justice would be satisfied.
The consequences of our sin are many. A disordering of our desires, our relationships, our sense of justice. But the ultimate consequence of our sin was the death of Christ, which promises order, peace, reunion with God for all who would now choose to be his. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you this morning. Father, we praise you that in your mercy you've given us your word. You've given us challenging passages in your word. Difficult exhortations, convicting truths. Father, we know that your spirit can make even the most bitter things into sweet and welcome news. Father, our sin is a heavy burden that each of us carries apart from you. But Father, we thank you for your Son, for his ordering of our lives out of disorder and chaos. We ask that by your Spirit you would continue this work in us now, exposing sin, refining us towards holiness, with empathy and understanding toward others who are also being transformed. We love you, Father. We ask these things in the name of your Son, Jesus, by whom our sins are forgiven. Amen.